Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast, where we address topics relevant to today's consumers and farmers. I'm Preston Schrader. And I'm Jason Carr. Preston and I are Technology Development Reps, or TDRs, for Bear Crop Science. As TDRs, our primary mission is to help solve agronomic challenges that farmers face and to understand how to best utilize the bear suite of products, including traits, genetics, crop protection, as well as digital tools, to create solutions that are tailored to each grower's unique farm. We have a couple goals with this podcast, the first being to help farmers across the country to address challenges that they face throughout the growing season while introducing them to game-changing technology that has the potential to radically benefit their farming practices. We also want to provide the consumers of ag commodities who are not necessarily involved in agriculture with information about the practices farmers engage in and the reasons behind them to hopefully provide a greater level of understanding and comfort with how their food is produced. Hey listeners, before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to warn you that today's audio quality isn't the best. We messed up a little bit with some settings on our end while recording, but I thought the interview was good enough to post as is. We've corrected this problem so you can expect crystal clear audio in future episodes. Now, back to the interview. Our guest for today's episode is retired soybean breeder Tom Floyd, who had a highly successful career spanning parts of five decades. Soybean varieties that Tom developed in his career have been grown on millions of acres across the Midwest from the 1980s through the present day. Tom, welcome to the podcast. To start out, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background, your education, and your job history? Well, I grew up on a small family farm in central Indiana, uh, Tipton County, Indiana. And when I say small family farm, we were 160 acres and... uh, about 20 of that was wooded, so was wasn't a very big farm. <clears throat> and uh, at that time, there weren't a lot of big farms, but uh, as things things have changed a lot over the years. Uh, from there, I I went to college at Purdue and uh, was studying ag business management. Probably going to end up as a uh, uh, in the ag banking uh, industry. You know, probably uh, farm management or farm loans, and that's the way I was going. And my junior year, I started working for uh, Pfizer Genetics as a kind of a grunt in the uh, corn research nursery where my brother happened to work and uh, found that very interesting and enjoyable and did that for a couple of years and also did some uh, planting of soybean plots. Uh, that would, would have been 1976. And when I graduated from Purdue, or I should say, let me go back. And before I graduated from Purdue, I took genetics as a free elective. Um, what you know, wasn't an easy course to take when you're studying business, but uh, I found that very fascinating. And when I graduated, I had an opportunity to take a job with Pfizer Genetics working on soybean. I started there, and eventually I moved to... Uh, southern Indiana and worked with a breeder named Norm Bratner and was able to work on hybrid soybeans, which was fascinating and uh, kind of we cutting edge at the time. Those. No, <clears throat> no, but we, it was, it was the early days. Uh, Norm had a, a patent on, uh, on developing uh, hybrid soybeans and using seed size from the ones to to, to, to sort them and it was a lot of basic basic research uh, without a lot of money 
Um, but it, it was fascinating. I learned learned a lot, and it was really exciting. Got to see whole gamut of germplasm and, and soybeans, and germplasm means you know just all different all different varieties. Introductions from China, and Manchuria, and Korea, and and varieties developed here in the U.S. So I got to see all those things and work with them. We made selections and crosses and and trying to develop the perfect male and female for for hybrid soybeans. And we made a lot of progress, but not not enough to make the uh, the owners of the company uh, you know money real quickly. So <laughs> so 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 I ended up uh, under under Norm's. Uh, Tutelage. I, I I began a uh, uh, my own breeding program. I say I, I I didn't didn't learn any of this in college, so I I learned it from him and a fellow named Paul Stun. And Paul's actually the one who hired me, and uh, they were great mentors and gave me the opportunity to learn from them. And they were they were some of the first soybean breeders in the U.S. commercial soybean breeders. Uh, even though one was Chinese and the other was Canadian, they were two of the two of the early soybean breeders in the company working for Americana Seeds originally, then Pfizer Genetics, and learned a lot from them. They gave me the opportunity to make mistakes and uh, uh, had a lot of responsibility, and things kind of took off from there. So you were uh, you started off with Pfizer, and then you went through a few corporate changes over the years. Is that right? Yes, uh, you know this is probably the story of a lot of a lot of people in the seed industry. I I never changed companies; the company just kept changing. So I worked for Pfizer Genetics, which had been it was a combination of several companies in, in soybeans. Uh, it, it was a company in Iowa, uh, a company in Mississippi. <laughs> uh, I was working in Indiana. That Pfizer purchased all these companies, um, and then. Uh, Pfizer Genetics became, uh, they did a joint venture with uh, DeKalb Seed Corporation, uh, DeKalb, Illinois, and became DeKalb Pfizer Genetics. Eventually, DeKalb purchased Pfizer's portion of it. And they were the second largest seed company in the world at the time, behind Pioneer Hybrid. Eventually, uh, DeKalb went public and... uh, was on the New York Stock Exchange and, and uh, was doing quite well through the 90s. And then uh, at that point, the company, which is a family-owned company for the most part, they own most of the shares, they sold to Monsanto. And eventually Monsanto became the largest seed company in the world. So I never changed companies. The company just kept evolving. Just changed around you. Yep. So you haven't talked much about what you accomplished in those years, but um, I'll say a few things for you here just to, you know, you you don't have to brag on yourself, but I know your products, your soybean products that you developed over the years are on well over 100 million acres through the years. Um, It's probably hard a little bit to put an exact number on it, but maybe 150 million or or even higher. Um, And you had some very big, uh, selling products, some of the number one uh, soybean products in the country, probably in the world, several years. And some of the farmers that might be listening might remember some products like AG 3803 or 3832, 
in the more recent days, but I'm sure going back farther, there's some great ones too. So clearly you had quite a few commercially successful products and that allowed you to stick around. So there's some plant variety patents. Uh, you were, had a number of those with your name on them. Uh, do you have an idea of how many patents you were had your name on? Well, for the first uh, 20 years of my career, we actually didn't patent anything. Variety releases were a little, <clears throat> a little lower than they were in later years. So I have probably about 100 that don't have patents, about 170 that do have patents. They were all protected by plant variety protection, which was in, you know, started the whole soybean business uh, in 1970 with plant variety protection. But yeah, that's, that's probably about the number. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting kind of side note or <laughs> side discussion, but sometimes consumers might, you know, we, we, we hear complaints about the price of drugs and things like that and, and companies patenting them and talk about, you know, well, maybe the government should come in and, and limit the price of drugs or what have you. Um, you know, really, that's a good way to stifle innovation. The, the patents allow companies to make the investment and recoup their investment to to produce these products that we're able to benefit from. Yeah, that's that's right. <clears throat> I say plant variety protection initially it, it allowed for allowed for some safe seed. Uh, it allowed for uh, uh, other breeders to, to work work with that material. If you've developed a variety another breeder could work with that. Um, so so it, it but it gave you some some protections and that really kicked off not not only soybean breeding but other crops for for breeding you know wheat and and others uh took off because of our protections offered with like i say without those protections no one <clears throat> no one would be interested in doing this work because most of it was not you know high high levels of profit uh margin so it made it difficult if you if you couldn't protect your product our, our last guest that we had in our last episode was Dr. Stuart Smythe from the University of Saskatchewan, and he made an interesting comment. He said he studies what government can do to encourage innovation, and then he corrected himself and he said um, more, you know, what can government do to get out of the way and let innovation happen, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so before we started, uh, Tom, you mentioned you're kind of a history buff, so I was curious, farmers have been breeding plants probably before they even realized it. Can you talk a little, little bit about the artificial selection process and the origins of plant breeding? Yeah, we really don't know how far that goes back. I mean, probably probably about as far back as when the first people started, you know, picking fruits fruits off trees or harvesting a little bit of, you know, weeds that they found and found some seeds and tried to eat them. Uh, it probably goes back to that time. Um, the early people were probably selecting for the, you know, the healthiest appearing or the uh, or the highest yielding plants, and you know, began saving seeds from it. You know, when they learned that they could save, you know, plants grew from seed that they could save some seed and grow it back the next year. So they were probably making some of those first selections. Uh, not you know, totally no one, yeah, not completely unlike what you've done in your career, Tom. You've pick the best ones and you save them for yeah. the next year, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> things, things, things haven't changed too much. Uh, you know, they were probably looking at things like fruit size, you know, apples and things like that, or with 
some weeds that later became crops, you know, uh, that they could get the seed out of it easily. You know, we call that threshability. You know, it's can you can you get the seed out of it? Some are harder than others. And then you also don't like things that, you know, naturally a lot of plants, the way they disperse their seed is they, as the seed pod matures, the seed will just, the pod will dry and it'll flick the seed out. Well, that's not very good if you want, if you want that seed. So, so we select against uh, shattering, it's called, you know, in soybeans. I worked in soybeans and we, we called it shattering and we'd select against that. And in the early days when I was breeding soybeans, uh, you know, shattering was a big problem and that's no longer a problem. We've selected against it. But, you know, height of the plants, you know, they liked a plant that was, you know, probably a little shorter than the, the, the wild type. They didn't fall over as much. And so the er, early, early men and women, and a lot of it was probably women. They did, probably did a lot of the work with the hunters, hunter gatherers. Well, the gatherers were probably doing some of the early selection. So that's probably how they did it. No one knows for sure. But, uh, you know, when we later on, if we talk about some of the DNA work that's been done, uh, some of the things we've learned from DNA work uh, more, more recently suggests that uh, that's probably what happened. There was probably some, you know, selection driving things towards certain genes uh, way back when. So those techniques that people kind of unknowingly were doing were, you know, as we mentioned, some of the same techniques that we're still using today. And it really was thousands of years until, um, you know, in, in high school science, we've probably all learned about Gregor Mendel. Um, and he kind of started to learn some things. And, you know, we refer to him as the founder of genetics, or at least our modern understanding of genetics. Um, can you just real briefly tell us about his work and how that was uh, important to the history of breeding? Gregor Mendel was a Augustinian monk working in the Czech Republic at a, a monastery. And doing that work uh, in the 1850s, he decided to work with peas because they were easy to work with and for the studies he wanted to do. And they didn't have a lot of a lot of differences, but he could he could see a few differences in them. So he made some crosses between those those pea plants, and and he studied the you know the differences that he saw and looking at things like the flower color, uh, seed color, uh, the pods, stems, things we all we all see when we look at look at peas. And through his work, took him several years, but he discovered, uh, I think he called them invisible factors. And it was probably 10 years later that he, he published his results. And from, those, from that work, Mendel came up with several laws of segregation, which we, we all learned along the way. Um, uh, his first law was the law of segregation uh, and you know, those invisible factors, you know, come from each parent and contribute uh, towards the parent arrangement we now know. He had a second law of independent assortment. And that, you know, these pairs of what we call alleles now are 
you know, segregate ind independently of each other, you know, when they were forming gametes. And then the, I think most everyone knows this one, uh, his third law was the, you know, law of dominance. And he actually coined the phrase uh, recessive and, and dominant, the terms recessive and dominant. Um, sad thing about Mendel, you know, as brilliant as he was, no, no, he published his works and he gave you know, talk about it, but no one really took notice for until about 1900, you know, after he had passed away. So, and about that time, they really began to understand that, you know, he was he was onto something from a scientific standpoint. Well, that's not uncommon that it would take. <laughs> Till after someone's death for them to be fully appreciated. And yeah. We certainly see today how impactful his knowledge was. Yeah. Now, during that time, that before it was discovered, there was a horticulturalist or a, bio, a botanist, you can call him, uh, you know, was one of my favorites was Luther Burbank. And he was, he was born after Mendel, but he was he was probably born about the time Mendel was doing his work. And but he as a young young boy in Massachusetts, I I read his book, his biography, and uh, he uh, took some potato hybrids that he had he had found. He found a a small bag of basically ended up being potato seed seedlings and he took those with him to California and began experimenting with them and selecting amongst them. And the result was the, the Burbank potato, the most famous potato in the world, even today. And he ended up doing work on fruits and vegetables and uh, including uh, plums and blackberries, came up with a thornless blackberry. He even had spineless, uh, a spineless cactus they developed for you know use for people for for grazing for cattle did did a lot of those things he didn't know anything about Mendel's work and so i i remember this from the book that someone someone asked him uh after the discovery of rediscovery of Mendel's work uh, what he thought of that and he he said what well, what what difference did it make to him now? Because he was already successful, he wasn't going to change anything. But he he did his work just from experimentation, and he was extremely successful. And we talked about plant variety protection and property rights. Um, he was one of the first people to try to to find ways to protect his his yeah, what he had developed and and try to get actually get paid for it. He developed. I think you know hundreds and hundreds of products, but he never got paid paid the full value, but he was the first to attempt to to uh, actually protect his product some in some way to be able to get paid for it that's interesting um switching gears here a little bit, there is a technique in plant breeding called mutagenesis that started to become common in the early nineteen hundreds. Uh, what do we know about this technique? And how effective is it? Well, mutagenesis was, I say, like you mentioned, it was first started in about 100 years ago. Mueller did work on fruit flies. Uh, 
And that gave people idea, you know, you could mutations were occurring. And if you could take that and use that on seed, that same same idea, uh, and he was using x-rays. So if you used x-rays on, on seeds, could you make some, uh, create some additional variability, uh, create some mutations that would normally exist in the crop. And the first one, first one that was worked on was barley. After that, I know sugarcane. I knew a sugarcane breeder, and they used used mutation breeding, mutagenesis, sunflowers, rapeseed, some fruits. I think it's a little bit done on apples and pears. There's other fruits, but you can use X-rays, gamma rays, chemical. Uh, EMS is a widely used chemical. Early in my career, I actually we actually did some uh, cobalt two thirty two. We treated a couple of varieties, radiated a couple of varieties, and, and we're looking for variability in the hybrid program I was working on at that time. So I, I got a little work in that area, but you, it's been highly successful for a lot of those crops. Did you have any success with that in your program, Tom? No, no, okay. <laughs> no. You were doing no, a very but, limited scale. Yeah, we only, only did a couple of varieties, uh, and it was you know, so in, interesting because we did it did create variability, but usually most of the variability that occurs is negative or, or can be lethal as far as the plant. Uh, so the plant will, will kind of take care of itself and it either, either if it can't reproduce it, it will uh, work it out of the system. So, and, and the ultimate would be that it would die, but, uh, Occasionally, you find the the result you're looking for, and you're able to it's able to reproduce, and you're able to select it, and and that's been fairly successful in some of these crops. As we continue this conversation, we'll get into the more targeted approaches that we take today. But the mutagenesis, those techniques, the radiation or or the uh, chemical, caused changes in all kinds of parts of the genome, correct? It, it, that, it wasn't that's just right. a single gene, it was many different genes. It, it's random. It's totally random. So you'd have to grow a lot of plants and and select, and you'd tr probably be looking for something in particular, a trait in particular that you're looking for, and you'd try to screen all those plants looking for that trait. And then if you could find that trait, and it was actually able to to reproduce, even if it was not a very, very nice plant, we'd use a method called backcrossing to select for that trait and backcross away from the negatives and keep the positive trait that you're looking for. So as we continue on um, in kind of our little history of breeding here, um, we come up to maybe the 1940s and 50s, and there really were a lot of important scientific discoveries made in that time frame helping us understand the nature of DNA and inheritance. So I know you've studied some of that. Can you talk a little bit about some of those discoveries? Well, early on, about 100 years ago, maybe a little over that, uh, was Morgan's work, Thomas Morgan. And he found that genes were arranged in a line on a chromosome from his work on fruit flies. After that, in the 
he said about 1940s, that was Avery, Oswald Avery. And he did work with pneumonococcus. And he was the guy that determined, although it wasn't fully recognized for a while, but he determined that DNA was probably responsible for the heritable changes that, we, that he was observing. And then a fellow named Chargoff observed that the, the nucleotides we, we see, the adenine, the thymine, the guanine, and cytosine, well, the adenine and thymine, the ratios of those, they, were, they were, appeared to be in equal amounts, as did the guanine and cytosine. And that was, that was a, a big clue for, uh, as people started putting together, you know, what, what's, what's going on here. Shortly thereafter, some researchers in, in England, Maurice Wilkins and Rosalind Franklin, were doing X-ray crystallography of DNA. And they took some really good pictures of DNA using, using X-ray crystallography. About that same time, a couple of fellows most people probably heard of, James Watkins, uh, James Watson and Francis Crick came along and they knew Watts, Wilkins and Franklin and were, uh, Franklin gave them access to, you know, some pictures that uh, Franklin had taken. And they were trying to use models. They were trying to, to guess the, the structure of DNA using models and they knew bonding structures and all these these types of things but if they could make a you know, three-dimensional model of it they they thought they could uh, you know guess guess what the structure would be and what they ended up doing thanks to Rosalind Franklin's x-ray photos and Chargoff's data was they were able to to build a model that was extremely you know elegant it was so simple and you know then it became clear that the pairing process of, for you know the dna could replicate itself so that that was all a very exciting time after that things kind of lay dormant for about 20 years it seemed like the next uh at least the next 10 to 15 years was spent with uh understanding what what watson and crick had figured out and how the coding process in DNA occurs. So it took till the mid-60s anyway before scientists figured out the entire coding of DNA and how proteins are coded for. It's interesting. That's kind of a little illustration of how science kind of goes in general. First off, every great discovery is kind of built on the backs of other discoveries before that are probably lesser known in a lot of cases. And also science seems to kind of go in fits and starts sometimes. We, we make big advances and then it seems like we're kind of at a standstill and, and after uh, you know several years that we pick it up again. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's very true. And that's it. It's nice to today, uh, you know, communication so much better um, that science discoveries are, are tr you know traveling around the world at a much faster rate so uh, much much quicker than they were in uh, 
uh, the 1950s with Watson and Crick at that time. So speaking of the 60s and advancements, uh, we classify the late 60s as the Green Revolution. Uh, what, what are some changes that were made in the 60s that impacted agriculture as far as the Green Revolution goes? Well, at that time, um, you're probably a little, little young to remember this, but uh, I was growing <laughs> up at that time. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it was it was a little scary because all we were hearing about was uh, children starving in India and and China and Mexico and it was not good times and uh, the the prospects were not good for feeding the world and really there was one one man that led the uh, led the way and that was you know a young plant pathologist from. Grew up in Iowa, went to school at the University of Minnesota. Norman Borlaug. I thought maybe you were going to tell us he was from Indiana. <laughs> no, yeah. We'd, we'd take him. We'd take him. He's a good man. But, you know, he worked at, at, at Simit in Mexico. And Simit's the uh, international corn and wheat center that was started back about 1940, something like that. And he began working there, and of course Mexico was one of the places that had a, a lot of problems. And you know, he worked on rust resistance and, and yield in wheat. So he improved uh, the rust resistance, and he was able to improve yield, but he had some pretty bad lodging. Lodging is, you know, the plants fall down. So if the plants fall down, the yield goes down, uh, this, 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 the seed heads get wet, and if it's uh, muddy and, and just quality goes goes all all the pot. And so he was able to make some crosses with some exotic material using some shorter, high yielding variety, high yielding varieties, and he greatly reduced the the lodging, the falling down. At that same time, he did work to show that there was uh, advantages to using fertilizers. Uh, artificial fertilizers and pesticides and did tremendous work in Mexico and then he also did work in India. India was looking at mass starvation and in India, Pakistan, in just a few years he was able to demonstrate to those those folks the advantages of his short high yielding varieties and the advantages of fertilization and they bought in and India went from a country that was needing aid constantly to a country that was exporting wheat in just, just a matter of years. Probably heard this before, but Borlaug estimated to save, you know, possibly as much as a, you know, a billion people from starvation during that time. It's just, just incredible. You know. Yeah, you <laughs> talk about people who have saved lives. I, I did read a little article on him and said, He's credited with saving more lives than anyone else in the history of the world, which, you know, is understandable. A billion people, not too many people can lay claim to a statement like that. Yeah, at that same time, there was a lot of work done on rice. Uh, and they used some of uh, the International Rice Research Institute, which is in the Philippines. It was you know, about the same age as the uh, summit. And those folks did uh a lot of a lot of work there, and adopted some of the same methodologies that developed, uh, you know, the the dwarf dwarf rices that 
again, high yielding, but didn't fall over. And uh, use of fertilizers, some of the same same ideas, and help help the people in Southeast Asia. It's tremendous. Yeah, Tom, thanks for joining us here today. We're at the 30-minute mark, so I think it's a good place to stop the podcast here where we've kind of talked about the past as far as plant breeding goes, and maybe we'll take the next episode to talk about current and future uh, breeding technologies. Um, So once again, we we appreciate your time here, and uh, for the listeners, look forward to our next episode where we uh, interview Tom uh, for the second part of this plant breeding series. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.